You are listening to a message from Adam Reardon at Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois. At Redemption Church, we are all about introducing people into a growing relationship with Jesus. If you would like more information, check us out online at redemption.cc. Now stay tuned for today's message. But hey, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 24, and this is actually the last week of a series we've been in called What? And we've been answering questions that you have submitted. And uh, today we're going to try to answer this question, uh, which is really kind of two questions, depending on uh, who you are and how you see it. And so the first way uh, this question comes in is, when will the world end? Uh, When is that going to happen, that we're all really concerned about the expiration of the world? Uh, If you're a Christ follower, the way you would probably uh, uh, phrase that question is something like this, is are we living in the end times? Are we living in that season uh, where we believe Jesus will return again. And so that's what we're going to spend uh, some time this morning talking about. Uh, what does Jesus say about the end times? What are the end times? And do we live in those times? So before we do that, uh, let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our time together. And then we're going to dive uh, right into Matthew chapter 24. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you in the name of Jesus this morning. And God, what we desire is you. God, I pray that you would help us this morning to to see your word, to hear it clearly. God, I pray that what we talk about this morning wouldn't just be head knowledge, but that it would uh, get from our head to our hearts, Lord, that this would matter in our lives. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work. We pray that you would be glorified and that our lives would be changed because your, your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, that it is the very word that you have spoken to us. And so God, help us this morning to see you clearly, to hear your word clearly and to leave here loving you more and more and more. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So here's, so here's what, what we're talking about, is when people talk about the end times, uh, maybe you've never heard that phrase. Uh, you know, Some people will call it the end of the world, the apocalypse. There's all kinds of movies and all kinds of things going on. But, but according to the scripture, when we talk about end times or the second coming of Jesus, here's, here's what we believe. Uh, we believe that Jesus came the first time born in the manger, in the flesh, God with us, is a baby. And he came to announce the kingdom, that as he grew up, as he began his ministry, he announced that the kingdom was at hand. He came as the suffering servant who would die in our place for our sins as the Lamb of God. And that what we know from Scripture is most people missed it. Most people didn't you know, believe that he was who he said he was. Most people uh, opposed him and denied him. And what Jesus uh, told us is that uh, after he was uh, died on the cross and rose again, he spent 40 days uh, doing ministry, spending time with the disciples. And what he told them was, is that he actually had to leave, that he needed to go to heaven to be seated at the right hand of his father, but he was going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit to us. And that with the Holy Spirit inside of us, we get these great uh, promises of scripture that, that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave is the same spirit that now is in us, that we don't have a spirit that is timid, but we have a spirit that is powerful, that Jesus actually says because of what he's done, because of the Holy Spirit inside of us, that we as his followers would actually have the power to do greater things than he did. And that absolutely blows my mind. But one of the things he tells his disciples is that he'll return, that he's coming back, that, that he, this, this temporary thing that he is going to be in heaven, seated at the right hand of this father is temporary, that he's going to return again. That, and what we believe according to the scripture is that Jesus will return personally in the flesh, and unlike the first time when most people missed it, the second time, no one will miss it. And that when Jesus returns a second time physically and personally, that he will actually complete 
the salvation that he's offered to believers. What we mean by that is that he would actually instantly transform those who have been saved into his image and his likeness, that we would become glorified just as Jesus has been glorified. And unlike the first time that Jesus came as a suffering servant, the Lamb of God, that in his second coming, he would actually come more like a warrior or a judge, that he would actually come to complete the salvation that he's already given us, but he would also come to inflict judgment, and he would come for vengeance for those who have defied him and for those who have denied him. That at the first coming of Jesus, he comes as the humble lamb. As the second coming of Jesus, he comes as the one who has the judgment of God upon him. And that if we look at the book of Revelation, it says like he comes like one who has a sword in his mouth, that his robe is dipped in blood, that he sits on a white war horse, that he comes to bring the kingdom of God to its fullest expression, but with that comes the judgment and the vengeance for those who have denied and do not believe. And see, whether or not you're a Christian, whether or not you're a Christ follower, we talk about the end of the world all the time. We're all really fascinated with the expiration date of the end of the world. In fact, there's all kinds of resources and books and thoughts on this kind of stuff. Uh, a few years ago, people were really obsessed with the Mayan calendar because there was this group of people that had kind of figured things out and they seemed to be advanced for the time period they lived. And so they came up with the calendar and they kind of thought they could predict the end of the age that was coming. The problem was, is like they disappeared and they didn't know that was coming, but somehow they knew more. I mean, it was just kind of weird. But like when my wife and I went to Mexico for our honeymoon, they were trying to like sell that thing. Like, hey, you want the Mayan calendar? I'm like, no, I'm good, bro. I'm not going to spend money on that. But there's the Mayan calendar. Some people get really like, some people get really obsessed with like Nostradamus and all his predictions, which if you ever study any of his stuff, they're all like really vague. He's like, I think there'll be a war in the East. And people are like, whoa, he got it. And you're like, well, I could predict that. I mean, I could throw out some vague stuff like, I think there'll be a political ruler who rises up and people won't like him. Like, that's going to happen. Like, that's, just, that's kind of a vague prediction. Uh, in 1988, this is one of my favorites, in 1988, a book came out that was called 88 Reasons the World Will End in 1988. Like, I just think that's awesome. Like, we'll just come up with 88 reasons because it's 1988. Uh, if that one went over your head, we've made it, okay? We made it. Like, we're Okay. Which some of you, because this, this happened in our lifetime, some of you freaked out for Y2K. You know you did. You know you did. You bought canned food and water bottles, and you, and you kind of freaked out. And you still have some of that canned food and some of those water bottles. You have some dry food saved up in your basement because the computers weren't going to know how to change the clocks, right? They didn't know how to go from 1999 to 2000. And I remember that one because, remember this? It like happened that we rolled into 2000, and people were like, it was too early, it's 2001, it's going to come. And like people were still buying water bottles and canned foods and like we made it, we're okay, right? We're okay. Just recently, uh, a couple years ago, the, the Netflix thing came out, the, floor, the Four Blood Moons, right? Anybody get caught up in that one? I had people calling me. Listen, listen, we had just started as a church and I had people that were like, we will pay for you to get the resources to teach on the Four Blood Moons. And I'm like, I got Netflix, I'm good. Like, and by the way, we're still here. Like, we made it, okay? There's a guy named Harold Camping that has made his ministry about predicting the end of the world. And guess what? He's worse than the weatherman because he's always wrong. He's always wrong. He's got, got a whole ministry that people pay him money, and he tries to predict when the end of the world is coming, and people still give, like, his ministry resources, and he's always wrong. And so this is why this is important. This is why I wanted to talk about this question because here's what we know about the second coming 
of Jesus. In fact, we're going to spend our entire time in Matthew chapter 24 for the sake of, of teaching this clearly in a way that makes sense. We're going to jump around in Matthew chapter 24 a little bit, but I want you to see the words of Jesus because I think one of the best things we can do is allow Jesus to be the expert on Jesus. Like if Jesus says it's true, I think we should take it as it's true. If Jesus says there's some things about him that we need to know, I think we need to, to really say, okay, I think Jesus knows best in this area. So here's what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 24, uh, 36, what he tells us is the date and the hour are unknown. He says it this way. He says, but concerning that day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but the father only. Jesus goes, listen, it's going to happen. In fact, Matthew chapter 24, what he does is he dedicates time to teach his disciples about his return. And what he says is, guys, here's what I want you to know. You don't know, the angels don't know, and what Jesus says, don't miss this, is that, not, that he doesn't even know. He says, the only person who knows is my father. That, that Jesus says, listen, there's, there's this one thing that I don't know, and it's my return, that only my heavenly father knows that. And see, it's really important because people will spend a lot of time trying to figure out when the, when the second coming is going to happen. There's people who have dedicated their lives and dedicated ministries to trying to figure out the exact time. There's people that predict it all the time. They write books. They put out movies. And, and here's, here's all I want to suggest to you. If Jesus says he doesn't know, it's arrogant for us to pretend that we do. Like, we, we have to be okay that faith means that there's times that we believe and we trust, even though maybe we don't fully understand. That we put our, our confidence in one that says, you know what? Faith says, I'm going to trust in you even though I don't have all the details. I'm going to believe in you even though this doesn't make 100% sense to me. And we need to be okay with that. Like, we need to be able to go, hey, Jesus, if he says it's coming but he doesn't know when, then I'm just going to trust that he's good that he always, he always tells the truth, and he always has my best in mind. So if he doesn't know, we shouldn't pretend that we should know either, but he tells us he is coming. In fact, Jesus doesn't just leave us hanging. He tells us that there will be signs of the times. He tells us, hey, there will be indicators. There will be things that kind of reveal to you that we're getting near. And this is how he says it, Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 32. He says, from the fig tree... Learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So here's what Jesus is doing. He's using an agricultural illustration. Like for us, maybe you would change it up a little bit and you would go, hey, in Illinois, when the snow starts to melt, the rain comes and the flowers start to bloom, you know summer might eventually show up, maybe if it makes up its mind. Right? You could say it this way. You could say when you see the farmers in the field, you know that fall is coming because the corn's knee-high by the 4th of July. He goes, there's indicators. There's kind of these things that you would see. He says, so also when you see these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, sometimes people kind of freak out about that and go, what do you mean heaven and earth will, free, will, will pass away? What does that mean? What the scripture tells us is, is right now there's earth as it is, as, as God has created it, but it's been tainted by sin, and there's heaven as it is. But when Jesus comes again, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. That the heaven as we know it will become new, and earth as we know it will become new. In fact, what will happen is heaven and earth will kind of be brought into one, that there'll be a new heaven 
and a new earth. So he goes, even that will pass away. He says, but concerning that day in the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, what's really fascinating about this is that every generation of Christ followers, since Jesus' ascension, have believed that he was going to return in their lifetime. In fact, we know that Jesus tells the disciples, hey, they need to stay into Jerusalem to receive the power that comes from the Holy Spirit so that they can go do the ministry he's called them to do. But we also know they stay in the city for too long. And God sends an angel, and the angel's like, what are you guys doing? Like, well, Jesus said he was coming back. We don't want to miss it. And he's like, yeah, but he told you to go into all the world. So leave here and go do what God's told you to do. That every single generation has believed that Jesus is going to return. In fact, even in the scriptures, we'd see guys like Paul will refer to the second coming of Jesus. And he refers to it in a way to say, hey, there's some expectancy. He's coming. Okay, there's some urgency. We don't have a lot of time to do what he's told us to do. So we better do it quickly. And that there's hope that Paul would even tell Christians and persecution, just hold on, brothers, because he's told us he's coming back. Like, and it could happen any, any day. In fact, if you were to go to Jerusalem today and you were to talk to a typical Jewish person, they are so convinced that the Messiah is coming that they only worry about today and not tomorrow. That they have a completely different mindset than we do. That they are so convinced that Jesus, is, the Messiah, is going to show up that they worry about today only. Because what they realize is that every single day is a gift and none of us are promised a tomorrow. And yet we as Americans spend so much time focusing about tomorrow and what's next month and what's like six months from now that, that the earliest Christians believed, hey, today is a gift and so I want to use today to its greatest extent. I don't want to waste today. I'm not going to put anything off that matters today. That today might be the only day that I have. So I want to live it to its fullest extent, to give Jesus the most glory and accomplish what he's called me to do in this day. So Jesus gives us some signs, and he tells us that here's some things that we need to look for. In fact, this is what Jesus said would happen. Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 1. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So here's the scene. Jesus and the disciples are at the temple. They're in the temple courts. This is God's temple. This is the temple that, that David began, that Solomon finished. This is the temple that represents God dwelling with the entire nation of Israel. This is where every single Israelite would go to make their sacrifices because that was the system they were under. I mean, this was holy ground. This is where God dwelt behind the curtain and the holy of holies. This was significant. This was important. Probably the most important structure in the world at that time is the temple. And Jesus is with the disciples at the temple. And what happens, the scripture says, some of the disciples start to point out different architecture and things at the temple. In verse 2, but he being Jesus answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left one, left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what, be, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So here's what happens. They're at the temple and Jesus goes, you see all this? One of the things that ha that's going to happen is the temple is going to be destroyed. In fact, Jesus says, not only will it be destroyed, like brick upon brick will be taken down. This thing will be destroyed brick by brick to the point that there'll be nothing left. And what happens is this is alarming for the disciples. 
I mean, this is important. This is spiritual. This is significant. This is where the entire nation comes to make their sacrifices before God. And so when Jesus says this thing will be torn down, that, that's alarming to them. I mean, their, their ancestry is caught up in this. Their history as a nation is caught up in this. Their belief in God is caught up in this. And Jesus says, no, no, no. One of the things that will happen is there will be a time where this thing will be torn down, literally taken apart brick by brick. And, and Jesus saying this is what begins this conversation about the end. The, the disciples, I think, are so amazed by what Jesus said. I think they're kind of shocked by what he says. So what happens, it says that Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples are like, hey, can we, can we talk real quick? Like that thing you said, that just kind of, that, that kind of messed me up a little bit. I'd like to have some conversation. This wasn't a public conversation. So the reason that we know about it is because guys like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were there. Peter was there, and they decided, hey, we need to write this down. Like this is, this is some interesting stuff that Jesus was saying. Now here's the thing. Some of the stuff that Jesus is going to tell us this morning in Matthew chapter 24 is in the process of happening. And so what that means for us is that it requires some faith. It requires us to take Jesus at his word and believe that he is who he says he is, that he really is the unique son of God who has risen, that he is the master and commander, that he's in control of all things, that he rules and that he reigns, that he knows more than we do. Because some of this stuff we're still waiting for, but some of the things have already happened, and this is one of them. In fact, what we know from history is 36 years after Jesus would tell his disciples, hey, you see this temple? It'll be completely destroyed. It was. In fact, 36 later, in 70 AD, the Jewish nation revolted and raised up against Rome. And Caesar, he seized Jerusalem and eventually burned the whole place down. They set the whole city on fire. In fact, you can see historical documents where they debate what to do with the temple. And there were some that said, hey, this is too important. This is too significant. We shouldn't ruin the temple. But you know what happens once you set a city on fire? The whole thing tends to burn down. And what happened with the temple is because the temple was so ornate, because there was gold on the walls, according to God's center, because there were gold things in there. When it heated up, what happened is the gold that was on the walls literally melted and then as it began to run down the walls, as it began to cool down, it actually began to settle in between the cracks of the temple. But we know historically, you can find this in the history books, is once the building had cooled down, once the temple was no longer on fire, the Roman soldiers came back with basically hammers and tools and crowbars, and they took down the temple brick by brick so they could get the gold. It was kind of like the first gold rush, but it wasn't in Alaska. They decided, hey, if we want to get all the gold out of the temple, we just have to take it apart brick by brick because in between every single brick was gold and the temple was destroyed, just like Jesus said it would. In fact, there's other things that Jesus says that we need to be aware of, some things to look out for. This is one of them. He says that there will be deception in the church. Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 and 5, it says, And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Now, this is interesting because Jesus isn't just saying that there will be deception in the world because there's been deception in the world since Genesis chapter 3. Since Adam and Eve aligned themselves with Satan, since they rebelled against God and ate the fruit, there's been deception in the world. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is with his closest followers, the disciples who would be the ones that Jesus calls 
to start churches and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He's with those guys. He says, hey, one of the things you need to be aware of, if people are going to try to lead you guys astray, like you guys are the first church planners, you are the ones that are going to start the movement and take the gospel from this place to the ends of the earth. And here's what's going to happen. Within the church, there's going to be deception. That the truth will be exchanged with lies. That people will try to, instead of leading people closer to me, will actually try to lead people away from me. And what he specifically says is that there would be some people who would show up and claim to be Jesus. That there would actually be people who would show up and say, hey, hey, I'm actually Jesus. I, I'm the one that, you just missed it. You didn't know I came back, but I, I, I'm the new Messiah. I'm Jesus. And you might think that's weird. But if you go on Google, there's a guy that lives in South Florida who says he's Jesus, and he has a huge following. The people really do believe he's like the reincarnated Jesus. And what Jesus tells us to be careful of is that, there, that we would be on guard, that we would keep our eyes open, that the church stays committed to the truth. In fact, he says it this way in verses 23 to 27. He said, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and they'll perform great signs and wonders. So as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. That's Christ followers. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes in the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the second coming of the sun of man. He goes, if anybody shows up and says, hey, Jesus is over there. Hey, Jesus is over there. Hey, I'm Jesus. He goes, no, 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 don't believe them. Don't be deceived by them. He says, people miss the first coming, but no one will miss the second coming. It'll be like a huge crack of lightning in the sky. Everybody will see it. Everybody will know. Now, we live in a culture where I tend to believe, right? I tend to believe if somebody showed up this morning and said, hey, church, I'm Jesus. I think we would probably be wise enough to go, you're probably not Jesus. Like we, I, think we, I think we deal with that. But one of the things that's happened in the church and one of the things that's happened in our culture that I want to talk about for just a couple minutes this morning is that deception is being replaced by the word tolerance. Don't miss that. Deception is being replaced by the word tolerance. Now, here's the thing. Jesus was perfect in every way. But Jesus did things that you and I would have a hard time doing because he's perfect. Like, I probably, if I ever entered, like, a church or a religious organization with a bullwhip in my hand and started turning over tables, I'm probably in the area of sin. I don't think I could do that without sinning, but Jesus did. And Jesus was able to do stuff where he was the most loving person, the most caring person, but he was also incredibly exclusive and offensive at the same time. See, Jesus wasn't a tolerant guy. Like, Jesus wasn't like, hey, let's just all hold hands and let's all coexist and let's just love each other. Jesus said, hey, I love you, but I love you enough to tell you the truth. I love you enough to tell you that things are false. I love you enough to tell you that you're a guy or a girl who's in need of a savior. And see, Jesus not being tolerant isn't an excuse for us to be jerks. But we are called to be like him. And we see that, that even in the early church, that the earliest followers of Jesus were both loving and bold about the message. That they were all inclusive, hey, come and see, but they were also exclusive. There's only one way, there's only one truth, there's only one life, and his name is Jesus. We see verses like this, John chapter 14, 6. 
Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In our culture, that's offensive. In our culture, that, that insinuates that there's a right way and there's a wrong way. It means there's an in crowd and there's an out crowd. It means everybody doesn't win and go home with a prize and an ice cream cone. It means some people are in and some people are out. And Jesus says, I love you enough that you got to know there's only one way. There's only one truth and there's only one life. I mean, look at what the early church proclaimed. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. Well, what about no one else? What about no? Well, what about no? But I believe you're wrong. There is only salvation in one. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given by men by, by which we must be saved. The early churches, we love you. Here's the thing. His name is Jesus. We love you, but there's only one way. We love you, but if you don't believe in him, we know where you're going, and we don't like it, but we can help you get to Jesus. See, the reason this is so important is because some statistics say that 53% of all Americans believe if a person is good, they'll go to heaven. Over half. Over half our country believes if you're just good enough. See, the problem with trying to be good enough is, is you get ruled by religion and rules and morality. So what's good enough? I mean, is good enough the Pope? Is good enough Oprah? She gives away tons of free stuff. I mean, is good enough your crazy uncle? Is good enough you or me? When we try to be good enough, we spend all our time trying to figure out, well, how good is good enough? And then we spend an equal amount of time trying to find people who are not as good as we are so we can feel good about ourselves. So we're like, hey, I might not be an A student, but God, hey, if you would grade on a curb, if I can be a C student, I'm at least better than some people who are below me. And that's what 53% of our country believes, if you're just good enough. And yet the scripture tells us that to a holy, holy, holy God, like one of the things that I feel like God's just doing in my own life is, is I'm trying to like wrestle with the holiness of God, which I've just kind of begun to realize that I just don't fully understand. That like the angels have been with God since the very beginning, and yet still they stand before him and just sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what they do in heaven. They stand before God where they see him in glory. And one day we'll stand before God and we'll see him in glory and we'll just go, holy, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And just, this is like a free tip, and you can disagree with me, we can still be friends, but I know there's like really cute songs about going to heaven and asking God all kinds of questions. Like my personal belief is when you see him for the first time face to face, you'll just fall on your knees and go, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That he's that holy. That he's that perfect but he's that righteous. And see, what the scriptures tells us is that to a holy, holy, holy God, our goodness is like a bucket of filthy rags. That even on our best day, we don't compare to his holiness. So there's no point in us trying to be good because we can never be good enough. Your goodness and my goodness is never, ever, ever compared to his goodness. Our holiness is never anywhere compared to his holiness. The only hope we have is to be made holy by he who is holy. 
to be made lovely by he who is lovely, that we don't have to try to be good, that Jesus saves us and gives us his goodness so that we are made good. Only in him. Here's an interesting one. 43% of born-again Christians believe it doesn't matter what faith you follow. They all teach good and similar lessons about life and teach you to be a good person. 43%. That's not outside the church. That's in the church. They say, hey, 43% of people who claim to love Jesus, be saved by him, have been baptized and are committed to him. Also claim it doesn't matter what you believe because all religions kind of teach the same thing. That's deception. Because real quick, I'll just, I'll just kind of give you a couple quick lessons because in case you believe that, I just want to show you that they don't. Do the being a Buddhist, your goal is to not exist anymore? Like that's the goal. A Buddhist doesn't want to feel happiness, sadness, joy, or anger. The, the goal is just to not exist. Like if you're driving a stick shift, the goal is to be in neutral all the time. I don't feel good. I don't feel bad. I don't feel anything. I'm just there. It's not what the Bible teaches. If you look at the Muslim faith, there's literally a verse, if you get a Quran called Sirah 433, it says, if a wife does not listen to her husband, you should beat her until she submits. By the way, the Bible says men love your wife as Jesus loved the church. They don't teach nearly the same thing. The Quran says, kill the infidels. Jesus says, there's no greater love than this, than a man that would lay down his life for a friend. A little bit different of messages. Mormons, Mormons believe that Jesus and Satan are brothers. They just don't kind of get along. And we're kind of caught in the middle of that. Ladies, good news. You uh, adhere to the Mormon faith. You will get into heaven, but only if your husband allows you to. So ultimately, it's his decision. Because the Mormons, the belief of heaven, oh, it gets better. The Mormons' belief of heaven is that you receive your own personal planet that you kind of rule over. And ladies, good news, if your husband allows you into that heaven, you will eternally be pregnant so that you can populate your own little planet. Anyone need to sign on for that? Like eternity of, oh, pregnant again, going to have another baby. Like, so we can just have this, like, that's what they believe. Not in the Bible, like not the gospel, okay? In Hinduism, this is awesome. In Hinduism, it's all about being reincarnated. So if you live a good life, you come back. So like, if you're a bad guy, you might start as a worm, okay? And you got to work your way up. But the goal is to be a cow. Now, I don't know about you. I love beef. I just like it on my grill, I mean, my goal in life is not to come back as a longhorn. I mean, that's, that's not my thing. Like, I just, I don't know that walking around, like, eating grass all day is the idea of, like, joy, bliss, and heaven. But to the Hindus, it is. If you go to India, there are cows everywhere, and they are believed that they are sacred beings. That they stop traffic, they don't kill them. I mean, and, and I'm like, I don't think that's heaven. Like, when Jesus says, hey, I've come so that you can live life and life to the full, I don't look at the fields and be like, a cow. That's where it is, man. Just walk around all day, chomp on that grass, go to the bathroom wherever you want, and you just keep doing it. Like, maybe you get a few friends along the way. So, you know, go ahead. So, ladies, you can't be cows. Sorry, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, so I, I don't know. I just don't get it. So here's the deal. But 43, don't miss this, 43% of people who claim to be Christ followers go, doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you believe something, because they all kind of teach the same thing. Now, here's the thing. And I know this isn't tolerant. But if they all teach different things, one of them has to be right. And the rest of them have to be wrong. 
In fact, this one scares me. 57% of evangelical church members say many religions lead to the same eternal life. 57. 57% of people who are evangelical Christians go, hey, no, 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 no. I believe I'm going to heaven, but hey, I couldn't tell you that you're not, no matter what. Like, if you believe in a different God, I mean, hey, maybe, maybe we'll hang out in heaven, and it'll be like this big universal kumbaya hug fest that it just all roads lead to heaven, all dogs go to heaven, cats, maybe, I'm not sure. But, you know, I mean, like, and, and you go, but wait a minute, 57, isn't that alarming? That 57% go, hey, hey, bro, just believe in something, be sincere, and you'll get there. And I get it, because some people will push back and go, isn't it arrogant to think that there's only one way? Like, isn't it arrogant to think that we have the keys to the kingdom and everybody else is wrong? And I would answer that question this way. If you want to call me, so if after, after our worship gathering, if you came up to me and said, hey, Pastor Adam, I wanted to talk to you this week. How would I get a hold of you? What do you need? What do you need to call me? My phone number. There's only one phone number. Like if I say to you, hey, just be sincere, get in touch with the universe, and you just dial whatever comes to your mind and you'll get a hold of me, will you ever reach me? No, never. I mean, it would just be like directions. If you said, hey, hey, pastor, we, we want to go, go to Florida for vacation. Could you help us get directions? If I just said, choose a road. Let's hop on a highway. Let's just feel your way. Be sincere about every turn you make. You will more than likely never end up where you want to go because there are some truths that are absolute. God created the world that way. If you want to head south and you head north, you're going to hit an ocean before you're ever able to get south again. And when Jesus says that there's only one way, it means that there's one way. And that means that we have to believe him enough and have the faith enough and have the confidence enough to say, if Jesus says he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, then that means any other thing that claims to be the way, the truth, and the life has to be wrong. And I can love you, but I'm not going to tolerate you saying that it's, it's the right way. It doesn't mean I'm going to hug you and sing kumbaya and agree with you. It means that I have to love you enough to say, hey, my scripture says, my Bible says, the empty tomb says that Jesus is the one because that's what separates Christianity from everything else. That's what separates Christianity from everything else. You go to the tomb of Buddha, he's there, he's still buried. You go to the tomb of Joseph Smith or Brigham Young, they're still there, they're buried. You go to the temple of Muhammad, he's there. He's buried. You go to try to find Jesus' tomb, they'll take you to where he thinks in the garden tomb was, and they'll simply find a sign that says the tomb is empty, he is not here, but he's coming back. And I love the way that Pastor Timothy Keller says it. He says it like this. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And because Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. And what Jesus tells us to watch out for is deception. He says, watch out for people who claim to be Jesus. Watch out for people who perform miracles and do all these wonders and signs and then, and then claim that there's another way, that there's another truth, that there's another revelation, that there's somebody else who can save you. And he says, don't worry about it in the world. That's going to happen. What he says is worry about it in the church. Like if you go to church and they never open the Bible, run. 
Like if you go to church and the pastor teaches you a message and he references a verse one time vaguely, then you might not be in a good place. Watch out for deception in the church. He also says this. He says there'll be disaster in war. Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 and 8. He says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of war. Now, this is interesting that Jesus would say this. Because I've lived long enough that, that during my lifetime, we've been in a couple wars. I mean, I, I was young, but there was the Gulf War, and we've been in, in Iraq and that kind of stuff. But one of the things that's interesting is that even in my own life, I feel like now, maybe more than ever, we hear about rumors of war. Like, I was just thinking about that this week. That it's like you can't turn on the news about hearing about stuff like, Russia maybe, and Syria maybe, and Iran maybe, and who has these bombs, and who might use these bombs. Like, we're worried about wars that haven't even happened yet. yet Jesus says, hey, you'll hear about wars, but then you're also going to hear about rumors of war. This guy might, and they might, and this kingdom might. And he says, see that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes, in various places, and all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So Jesus says, hey, watch out. Keep an eye on the wars, because there's going to be more and more wars and rumors of wars. In August of 1945, World War II ended, and they called it the War to End All Wars. Since then, there have been over 225 armed conflicts fought throughout the world. I mean, you just, look, you just look at the world now, it seems like we are hot, primed, pumped, ready for another war. Like, you just watch the news, you see about civil wars in countries, you see about genocide wars in countries, ethnic wars in countries. Like, there is stuff going on, and I'm just saying, I think we're probably closer than we've ever been before because of some of the stuff that Jesus has said. Jesus said, hey, there's going to be famine. Now, what's interesting, if you, if you really do the, the work on this, if you do the research, Right now, they would say in the world, the problem, the reason that everybody doesn't have food is a distribution issue. They'd say, we have enough crops, we have enough food, we can go to India, we can grab some cows, like there's enough food, but the problem is getting the food to everybody. The problem is how do we distribute it? But they say in 20 years to 30 years, the population will actually outgrow the supply. That in 20 or 30 years, it won't be a distribution issue, it'll simply be there's too many mouths to feed. And Jesus said, hey, watch out, because famine's one of those things. Like one of the things he tells us is watch out for natural disasters. That there'll be things like earthquakes. According to the Red Cross in the United Nations, in the 80s, there were about 120 earthquakes a year in the world. But today, there's somewhere around 500 a year. So I would just say it seems as though we're on that curve. It would seem as though is that our world is headed exactly in the direction that Jesus said it was going to go. And I love the way that Jesus says that it's the beginning of the birth pains. And you go, hey, pastor, what does that mean, that the, the beginning of the birth pains? And here's what I think it means. I think it means that our, it means creation is getting restless for its creator. The creation remembers when God created it and said, it is good. And creation is calling out to the creator, come back and redeem. Come back and make us new. Come back and restore your kingdom as it once was. That even the rocks cry out. Come back. Come and save. Come and redeem. The other thing that Jesus said to watch out for is death and persecution. Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 12, he says, And then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. 
and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Jesus says, hey, one of the signs of the times, it's going to get really hard for believers. Like your friends are going to hate you. People are going to hate you. People are going to give you up because it's going to be hard for you to be a believer. And here's the thing. We as Americans have a very small view of persecution. Very small. Like we tend to believe we're being persecuted if somebody picked on us, said something that hurt our feelings, disagreed with a Facebook post, didn't like our Instagram pictures, or told us the truth in love. And some of those things happen when they go, oh, I'm being persecuted in his namesake. And you go, I think that's just life. I think that's just stuff you should experience. We're not always going to get along, but we're still called to love one another. We're told to call each other, to tell each other the truth and love that iron sharpens iron. The scriptures that say a harsh word from a friend is better than empty promises and empty words from, from an enemy. It's going to happen. Like somebody not liking your Facebook post isn't persecution. Because listen, right now in our world, 480 people are killed every day because they love Jesus. That today, like on a Sunday, as we gather for worship, there's people in the world that died trying to get to church. And yet we live in a world where like, you know what? Weather forecast says a little bit of rain today. I'm not sure if we're going to make it to church or not. Schedule's a little bit full today. Don't know if I can make it to the local gathering of believers today. Hey, you know what? I'm not sure I love that sermon series that's going on. Maybe we can plug for, for the summer. And yet we live, in, we live in a country where people are dying, literally dying, to get one page of scripture. Like literally going to underground churches because they believe when the scripture says don't forsake the gathering of believers that it's important. And the reason I bring it up to you is because I just have a hunch. And I could be wrong, I've been wrong before, but I just have a hunch it's going to get a lot harder for believers in America. And you know what Jesus said? If we're not absolutely sure that we believe that we believe, then people will fall away. People go, you know what, it's too hard. You know what, there's too much frustration, there's too friction. You know what? Hey, somebody might not like me. There might be persecution. We've never had persecution for our beliefs in this country, but we should be ready. Like, do you believe what you believe? Like, is Jesus the most important thing in your life? Because I think it's going to get harder. We have brothers and sisters in countries that are setting the example for us. Like, if you don't believe me, it's a, like you can get it for free. Just get the voice of the martyrs. They'll send you an update every month about places in the country where people are dying just because they love Jesus where they're dying just because they're not willing to deny Jesus with people who stand in front of them with guns and machetes, people who literally die sharing their faith with a friend and somebody reports them. Jesus says, hey, that's one of the signs. That Christians are more persecuted now in our world than they've ever been before, and that's something that Jesus said would happen. In fact, this one scares me a lot. Jesus says that people's love will grow cold. Matthew chapter 24, verse 13. Because the many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. We live in a cold world. But what Jesus is saying is the fact that our, our love for people will actually diminish. And I think what he's saying is that we would see the things that are happening in our world, that we would see the crime rate, how we, we, we would see things like, the sex trade is the third largest you know, business in the world, that we would see the things that happen to our neighbors, that we would see the things that happen in our country, and we would go, you know, but it's not my problem. My problems are my problems, your problems are your problems, and if it never ends up at my front door, then I don't have to do anything about it. 
And so we would lack love. We would lack compassion. And we would stop loving and caring for one another. And see, the reason this one scares me is because in the book of Revelation, one of the churches is rebuked simply because Jesus says, you forgot your first love. Jesus says, hey, there's an opportunity for that to happen. Like this is more than just about loving one another. This is more than that. It's actually an identity issue for us. Because what Jesus says in John chapter 13, verse 35, he says, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Like it's, what, it's one of the biggest things that's supposed to identify us that we've been radically saved by Jesus, that we don't belong in this world, but we're citizens of heaven, that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us is the fact that we would love one another the way that Jesus first loved us. It just says one of the signs of the time is people will stop loving that way. Love will go cold. That you'll see people that all of a sudden they go, hey, I'm a little bit offended. I'm out of that church. That all of a sudden we won't be able to tell the truth to one another. We won't be able to serve one another. That we won't care what's happening in one another's lives. That we won't let people in to our lives. That we just wouldn't love those who are struggling. We wouldn't love those who are lost. We wouldn't love those who are called to love. That Jesus said it's going to happen. My hope and prayer is that it just doesn't happen to us. And see, what happens when we talk about the end times is, is I think there's really three things that can happen. As we talk about these kind of things, I think there's kind of three results, and I think only one of them is a desired result. The first one is this. Is we kind of come up with this white picket fence mentality. So what happens in our lives is we put up, like, in the front yard, the white picket fence. What we do is we go, hey, I want to love people, but I'm going to love them from a distance. Like, I see what's happening in the world, but, like, they can't cross this barrier. Like, this is my domain. This is my area. I, I just, I, I control who comes in and out of here. And so the world stays out there. Sinful people stay out there. Lost people stay out there. People that I, I choose not to spend time with, they just stay out there. And we're, we're, like, protected in here. And I don't see Jesus ever calling us to that. Like, I've never read the Bible verse where Jesus said, hey, put up the fence so you don't have to let anybody into your life that believes or thinks differently than you do. See, even worse than that, what happens is what I call the bunker mentality. When we start, like, it just relationally and emotionally and spiritually, maybe even physically in our lives, we start pouring four feet of concrete. We buy guns, water bottles, canned goods, kind of like Y2K, except we just get in the bunker mentality and we go, hey, it's just us, and we're just gonna, we're just gonna try to wait this thing out. We're just gonna try to wait it out we're not going to be in the world. We're not going to be influenced. We're just not, we're just going to kind of wait because everything's bad, 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 bad. And we don't want anything to do with the world because it's going to a place in a handbasket quickly. That's the bunker mentality. And I know people with the bunker mentality and I pick on them all the time because I think it's funny. But, but rather there's another one. And this is what I think Jesus desires for us. And it's this, it's that we wouldn't be afraid, but rather we would be bold we would live on a mission. I love this because Jesus is speaking to the disciples. And don't miss this. They're totally freaked out by what he's saying. Like this whole conversation started with Jesus like, hey, see that temple over there? Gone. Brick by brick, taken apart, gone. And they're like, hey, that kind of freaks us out. Can you tell us more about what you're saying? And Jesus is speaking to, to people who have never been more than 76 miles from their home. So from here, Milwaukee would be like, I think, 85 or 86 miles. So these guys, like from here, had never been to Milwaukee. And Jesus is talking to these guys, and this is what he says to them. In this gospel, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
Jesus looks at him and goes, hey, I know you're a little freaked out right now, but you know what my desire for you? You know what my mission is for you? Like, you're not going to freak out about this. Rather, you're going to be bold. Like, you're going to be the plan A, that you're going to take the gospel that you're, you're witnessing. You're going to be witnesses to what I'm doing, and your job is to take it from here to the ends of the earth. Like, no white picket fence, no bunker mentality. Rather, you see every day that you've been called, empowered, and given the Holy Spirit so that you could live like a missionary. Because the end is drawing near, but we've been given the task of seeing as many people saved as possible before Jesus returns. When Jesus told 12 guys, hey, you're going to change the world, and here's what I believe. Listen, I know we're a young, small, scrappy church, but we're called to do big things. Like, I believe Jesus has called us here because he wants to see lives changed by the gospel. He wants to see homes transformed by the gospel. He wants to see families and marriages saved by the gospel. He wants to see people who are Christians on a trajectory to spend eternity in hell, become adopted sons and daughters because we are here and we love him enough to be bold and live like missionaries in our community to tell people Jesus loves them. He's the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one name which saves him. His name is Jesus, and we can help him, them follow him. And that's what we're called to do because that's how Jesus ends this. Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 to 44 says, Therefore, now, whenever you see the word therefore in Scripture, you have to ask, what is it there for? And Jesus says, based on everything I've told you, based on everything that I've told you that's going to happen, based on, on, on what I've told you about my second coming, he says, therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Think of it this way. Have any of you ever had anything stolen from you before? Raise your hands. Anybody had something stolen from you? I yeah, I had some stuff stolen before. Now, here's the deal. If you received a text or an email today, and they said, hey, dear property owner, just a heads up, tonight around 1130, we plan to rob you. We want to make this easy. If you would please vacate your property, leave the keys on the table, the door unlocked, it would make everything smoother for us. If you would just know that we're coming at this time on this date to rob you, that would be wonderful. Thank you, thief, right? What would you do? If you knew someone was coming to your house tonight at 1130, what would you do? Well, I guarantee you wouldn't like watch Netflix and go to bed at 11. Like, well, they're going to be here in a half hour, better go to bed. No, like, listen, you'd call some friends and go, want to have some fun tonight, right? Like, you know, you, you, would, you would believe in gun control. If you come in my house, I will control you with a gun. Like, you, you, would, you would put down a bear trap at your front door. I mean, you would, you, would, you would call the police. You would do things. You'd get active. You wouldn't be like, well, let's head to bed early because it's going to be a big night. And Jesus goes, listen, it's the same thing. He goes, I'm coming like a thief in the night. You don't know when. You don't know the hour. He goes, so don't go to sleep. He's like, don't be casual about this. Don't live with no urgency. He's like, don't always put things off till tomorrow because I'm coming. And I'm coming like a thief in the night. Don't fall asleep. Don't get distracted. Don't get lazy because I'm coming. In fact, I think one of the worst things that could happen to us is that Jesus could show up exactly like he said he would. 
like in the thief in the night. He makes a reference in Matthew 24 to Noah. He said, hey, I told Noah it was coming, but no one else knew the flood was coming. It'll be just like that. And that Jesus could show up one day and we could stand before him. And I think one of the worst things that could happen to us is we could stand before Jesus and go, hey, Jesus, like I knew you were coming back, but here's the thing, Jesus. Like I'm completely up to date on my Netflix. Like I got through all my seasons, so I'm good. Like Jesus, I got some hobbies I'm really interested in. Like my golf game is point on. I'm doing great in golf. Like, hey, Jesus, have you seen my yard? That grass is green and the lines are straight and I'm winning the war on weeds. Like some things really good. Like, Jesus, I, I have some fantastic plans for the summer. Like we got some really fun stuff on the calendar. It's going to be sweet. And then as you stand face to face with Jesus, you go, but hey, there's like all this stuff you told me to do that I never got around to. Like I took care of my Netflix account. I took care of my yard. I took care of my building my little kingdom. I took care of my golf game. I took care of my fishing game. But here's the thing, like, yeah, I probably still need to talk to my neighbor because you put them on my heart. Like that, that whole thing about loving you and following you, I, I always thought I would get around to that. See, I think the question that Jesus leaves us with in Matthew chapter 24 is, are you ready? Are you ready? If Jesus showed up today, would you be ready? Or if Jesus showed up today, would you go, yeah, but if only I, and if I could have got, and if I had more, are you ready? Because the reality is, is that God gives every single one of us one day at a time. None of us are promised a tomorrow. Rather, every single one of us are prom promised that Jesus could come back at any given moment, at any given time, just like a thief in the night. So are you ready? Listen, if you're a Christ follower, here's my challenge for you today. Are you living with that kind of urgency? Like, are you about Jesus' work? Are you about being his hands and feet, knowing that maybe today's the last day that you and I get on this planet? Because he could come tonight like a thief. Are you living that way? Are you pursuing him with that kind of passion? Are you living like a missionary, trying to see as many people saved by Jesus as possible? What if today was the last day? Are you ready? Maybe for some of us in the room, maybe you've been on the fence about this whole Jesus thing. And maybe you've just kind of been wondering and searching and asking questions, but here's my question. Are you ready? Because salvation is a limited time offer. See, when Jesus comes again, there's no more opportunity for salvation. Those who are saved are saved, and those who are not are not. And see, maybe the whole reason you're here today is because Jesus wants you to know that he loves you, that he came as the pure spotless lamb to die on the cross in your place for your sins, and he rose again in power so that you could have power. You could be set free from your sins so you could live life to the full, that you could ever have every hope and promise in the Bible, not because you're good, but because he's good. And that he loves you not because you're worth loving, but he loves you because he's lovely. And that all you have to do is put your faith and your trust in him. Scripture says it this way, that you'd repent of your sin and that you would believe in Jesus and you would be saved, that you'd be made new, that you'd be an adopted child of God, that you would have an inheritance that is secure for you in the heavens because Jesus saved you. Are you ready? See, I love talking about the end times because I think the only response to the end times is this. If you believe it's true and if you believe Jesus is Jesus and if you believe he's coming again, the only real thing isn't to sit around and be afraid and try to predict who's who and what's what. It means that we should live with a vigorous 
urgency that today is a day that the Lord has made. I should rejoice and be glad in it. And I'm called to live like a missionary for the glory of God to see the gospel expanded to the ends of the earth is because today might be the only day that we've given to be coming again like a thief in the night. Thanks again for listening to this message from Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois, where we believe faith is a journey, not a guilt trip. Listen again next week, but in the meantime, visit us at redemption.cc.